Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, it's great to have your company for The Country Hour today. I'm Cassie Huff. I know a lot of you have finished up one of the latest harvests in uh, living memory virtually in this state. I hope you're happy with the outcome as much as this guy is. The grain's very heavy and big and does wine very well and uh, we're seeing exceptional uh, yields um, like we've never seen before and we may never see again in our lifetime. I'll have more from um, some farmers about how the harvest has gone. But I'd love to hear from you. Text me 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 991. I'd love to know if you're still going, if you've just wrapped up, um, how late it is for you and what that's meant and uh, what the, the quality and the quantity has been like. It's certainly been one that I'm sure will be talked about for many years to come. So as I said, text me 0467 922 or phone 1300-222-891 if you would like to join the conversation. Also, the Federal Agriculture Minister is travelling to Europe this week promoting some Australian produce. I'll have more on what he's getting up to soon. But first up today... Australian farmers splashed more than $2 billion on 19,000 new tractors in 2022. And the spending spree is tipped to continue this year. If that's you, if you've been a part of that, perhaps this big crop made you open your checkbook or your, your wallet, or perhaps your bank account, uh, then let me know. Uh, working with the What's uh, been happening is with the late harvest as well. Text zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. The Tractor and Machinery Association of Australia's Gary Northover says the sales surge was the highest level seen in the industry since the nineteen eighties, and for the year ahead, Mr. Northover says farmers keen to restock the machinery shed could be waiting twelve months to get their hands on new gear. He's speaking here with Cara Jeffrey about the outlook. We've just uh, seen the numbers for the full year uh, come through in the last couple of days and it's been another fantastic year, another record for the industry. We're tracking around the 19,000 unit sales in tractors, which is the second year in a row we've been at that level and we haven't seen those sorts of numbers since the 1980s. So um, quite another phenomenal year, really. And is there any particular size tractor that has been selling well that's in demand? Look, it's across the board, to be frank. All states and all sizes have been up. Certainly those smaller under 40 horsepower tractors have enjoyed a bit of a bump in the last half of the year. But, you know, the big ones, 200 horsepower and above, have been strong all year. They're 3% up. Queensland's been probably the standout state across the nation. They're 14% up on the previous year. Even WA have been strong again, another 4.5% up for the year. So it's been it's been widespread. Based off how things went for 2022 being such a strong year, what would the mm. outlook be for this year, even though we're just only a few weeks into mm. it? How do you think mm. things are looking? We've been sort of speculating. The industry can't sort of keep going at this sort of rate. When we think 12,000, 13,000 tractors has been a good year for the last you know, number of years, all of a sudden to be two years of 19,000 suggest to you that things might sort of come to a bit of a stop but we don't think we'll see that in 2023 we think that demand is still strong um we do think that demand for 
agricultural commodities looks like being another strong one this year and the government's temporary full expensing program has another six months to run but all of that's being underpinned by used equipment prices so farmers can trade in or sell their used machine for let's say very close to what they paid for it and get a newer model with all the features that come with that uh, and and and, yeah be in good financial shape so we think that's going to continue for a while, and that's probably one of the things that's driving these sorts of uh, continuously high levels. And what's the wait like for new gear? Are you hearing from dealers that once it's ordered, say if you wanted to get a header for the next harvest, would you get it in time, or is the wait still quite a way out? It's it's still a problem. It's There's no doubt about that. The headers can be a bit different because m- many of the dealers are forward ordering in anticipation, so they're, they're taking a bit of a punt there. But if you're talking about, you know, if you wanted to order a large tractor today from some suppliers, you wouldn't see it till 2024. And indeed, with all the volatility that we're seeing in terms of supply chain and pricing, maybe most of those people probably won't even guarantee you a price for that at this stage. So... Yeah, that, that, that situation hasn't uh, eased at all. And do you think the wet summer, a lot of um, parts of Victoria, South Australia and New South Wales have flooded more recently. Do you think that mm. will slow down buying at all? Those areas that have been affected have been badly affected and that'll, that'll certainly be severe. But across the nation, we feel that much of the areas of um, farming are still being able to continue. So hard to tell, but we don't think it'll be as drastic as it seems. Are people still making use of the temporary full expensing program when it comes to upgrading their gear? Yes, they are, but I'd have to say our sort of anecdotal advice is that it's not the sole reason for them making the purchase. It might have been early on where people were taking that opportunity, but there are other factors that are contributing as, as well as the temporary full expensing. It's not the sole reason for people buying tractors. Higher interest rates have been a, a, a big talking point, particularly um, in the housing market. Is that having any flow-on effect at all to the machinery sales? Look, it is. Uh, there's no doubt that people are starting to you know, see that flow through to price increases and, and financing increases, and the tipping point may well be near. Certainly, compared to conditions 12 months ago, the cost of getting into a tractor is much higher. Do you hear many reports of what the weight is too for that gear to come in from Europe and offshore of where where tractors and machinery come from? Is there a long delay to in those supply areas? It varies by the month. We, we felt two months ago that shipping uh, issues, for instance, had eased a bit. But just in this last month, we're seeing some, some subtle changes there. For instance, containerised freight has become a lot cheaper. And I think that's off the back of you know, the effective slowdown in China. So people are getting containers, getting that cheaper and getting a product moving. A Roro, on the other hand, has become much more expensive. In fact, we're seeing reports of prices increasing threefold there. And that's off the back of a, a range of things, uh, the volume of, of, of large product moving around the world. Shipping congestion times, port congestion times apparently have really gone up. And with the supply of military equipment into Europe, that's also playing into the demand side of shipping. So, you know, in answer to your question, it will change again next month. It's very hard to, to get a beat on what the what the sort of status quo is and, and people are just uh, are dealing with what's in front of them each, each day at this stage. 
Tractor and Machinery Association of Australia Executive Director Gary Northover speaking to Cara Jeffrey. And uh, I'm sure there's quite a few of you across South Australia who perhaps have uh, been keen to get your hands on some new machinery, but those wait times are sounding uh, pretty much like a, a lot of vehicles and things like that that uh, people have experienced in recent years as well. But uh, hopefully it's um, going to mean uh, that there's uh, well that there is lots of use for these machines in the in the coming year with uh, a lot of subsoil moisture still there across South Australia next year or this year I should say this year's um, crop should uh, hopefully shape up quite well but there's a lot to come between now and then and uh, we are still actually reaping in parts of this state analysts are predicting that Australia's wheat production will rise to a record 42 million tons and that's mainly due to a monster harvest. In in Western Australia, but South Australia could also reap a record crop as well. And uh, prices are still historically quite high. Some farmers are reporting their best year yet, and uh, there are still plenty of people going, and silos are still pretty busy. Uh, Brooke Nindorf caught up with Viterra's General Manager of Operations, Gavin Kavanagh, to hear how the harvest has been going into January. Yeah, harvest is going really well for us, Brooke. We've received over 8.3 million tonnes for the season to date. December in particular was a milestone month for us, with growers delivering a record 5.2 million to our sites. And from that point of view, I'd like to acknowledge the growers for their continued support, but also our employees for, for their hard work. Not only did we have a busy receival period over December, we also had our second largest shipping month ever with over 900,000 shipped for the month. And to date for the harvest, we've loaded over 33 vessels for our customers. Where does this harvest sit amongst the the last few years? This looks like at the moment uh, it's about to become the second largest harvest or receiver harvest for Viterra and subject to how we end up with deliveries both for the remainder of harvest and also even into post-harvest, it could well become a sort of record-breaking harvest for us. What's happening with the, the shipping program at the moment? The shipping program is still fl- is flat out for us. Um, we've got something like 19 to 20 nominated uh, vessels on our stem. Uh, we're loading at three or four different ports as we sort of speak at the moment. Gavin, obviously uh, the next few days is going to be ideal for, for a lot of people trying to finish off their harvest, uh, a lot more warmer weather. What do you sort of think uh, when it comes to time frame of when harvest might wrap up? Do you have a bit of an idea? Uh, I guess the way I think it varies by location and different areas is to when harvest might wrap up. So one of our keys is to continue to work with with growers. Whilst we've got growers who have completed their harvest, sorry, uh, is still to continue to work with those who are still going to make sure we provide them delivery options and operating hours so they can get the harvest off as quick as possible. I think the other um, focus for us as we head towards the end of harvest is also continue to work uh, with our growers and export customers at looking at providing post-harvest options uh, through our Port Direct product, which connects growers and buyers who are purchasing grain directly for uh, vessels. And actually, under this program, we received our first load of lentils or first lentils into Wallaroo this week for a vessel to be soon loaded. And, And then making sure we've still got options for growers looking for warehouse delivery post-harvest as well. What's quality been like coming in? Uh, The majority of the quality has been really good to date. Um, There are isolated or or regional quality issues due to uh, 
uh, seasonal type issues. And in those cases, we continue to work with our, our grower customers to to match or connect them with end use customers. But I guess given the the late start and also the really wet spring, um, I think the majority of people have been really surprised at the quality of the crop. As um, harvest closes out, we'll continue to work with our grower customers to provide them options to um, facilitate their deliveries. Um, that, that could include perhaps closing some of our smaller sites and ensuring they have the delivery options at, at larger sites for um, the grain that matches their need. Uh, Gavin, uh, there's also it's been announced by Viterra that there's uh, 40 jobs available across the company. In South Australia, I guess uh, it's that time of year where you know school leavers might be looking for work and, and that kind of thing. But uh, tell us about what these uh, these new jobs are and available. The predominantly operator roles responsible for undertaking things like a, a daily operations at site, which could include you know, loading and unloading of trucks, machinery operation, general site hygiene, loading grain on onto rail, or or uh, sampling and classifying uh, grain. I think it's a great opportunity for those looking to start in agriculture, and those roles are really critical to our ongoing success. Uh, success. Um, we'll provide the training required to undertake those roles. I mean, ideally, you know, we'd like like some of the candidates to come with some leadership and or grain or commodity experience, but but it's not essential, and we're really looking for people who are willing to learn take on a challenge and build a career both in agriculture but then with Viterra. Brooke, you mentioned about school leavers. I'd just like to mention that we've still got our traineeship roles open. We're looking for trainees right across the state, which is a great opportunity for people to get a start in agriculture and um, build skill sets. It's it's a two-year program where those trainees will have on-the-job training but also some formal education, an opportunity to gain experience and knowledge in um, grain handling and at the end of the program they'll be provided a Cert 3 in rural operations. Viterra's General Manager of Operations, Gavin Kavanagh, speaking with Brooke Nindorf. And in about half an hour in the program you're going to hear from some women who have taken to gusto the chance to uh, develop their grain handling skills. Some who have never actually even uh, worked in the grain industry or on a farm before. So I'll have more on that soon. Also weather's coming up as well. But in the meantime, we're talking grain and uh, I'd love to know how things are looking at your place. You can text me 0467 922 891 or phone 1300-222-891. Are you still going? Have you finally wrapped up? I'd love to know because uh, as, uh, as it does seem to be wrapping up now across large parts of the state. Uh, while this uh, season did have some challenges, it seems that the predicted bumper crop has delivered. Isaac Gill, a grain farmer from Mangalow in the Air Peninsula, says this season was a once-in-a-lifetime harvest. So we had a very slow start due to very cool weather and our crops not maturing and uh, dying off. And uh, so we were very slow to get started. We're probably a month behind starting where we would normally start. Then Right through until early mid-December, we had weather that was very cool and and, and rain on and off, and uh, so it's just been very tough to get going. And despite that delay in harvest, what other impacts has that weather had on the grain this season? Um, so far, we haven't had any um, weather damage to grain. It's been the, probably the opposite. It's been a cool, cool finish. The grain's very heavy and big and does weigh in very well. And uh, we're seeing exceptional 
our yields um, like we've never seen before and we may never see again in our lifetime um, and that's right across our peninsula. Peninsula is a big place and there's not one place that, that's uh, missed out this year which is, which is really good for the farmers and the community. And so then how does a season like this guide your strategic planning for the years ahead? Uh, well, it's just good to take some pressure off. We've had five or six years across our peninsula that have been uh, either drought or very low uh, rain for years with, with mixed results in yield. And so it's just good to be able to press the reset button on the bank account and for everyone, whether it be in the town or as farmers, just to be able to get back to where we'd like to be after some tougher seasons. Yeah, and as you just mentioned, there has been some fairly tough years. Looking forward to next year, do you feel positive that it will be as successful as this season has been? Oh, Mother Nature can do anything it likes, um, but we have got a substantial amount of subsoil moisture left under our crops, so if we can control summer weeds, um, we're not going to need an above-average rainfall to reap uh, average to above-average crops, which is a really good place to be as a farmer. And what comes with a bumper crop, although very positive, is sometimes logistical difficulties. I've heard that some silos on the EP are full and some very close to capacity. How did you go getting your grain into silos this season? Yeah, it's been a real challenge for everyone. Um, There's been trucks that we haven't seen, um, interstate trucks and not local trucks on the road to try and get this harvest in and we're very appreciative of people coming to help us and in the past we haven't had competition near us and in the last few years we've had a port um, pop up tea ports and, and that's 50 to 80 kilometres from where we live and it's that extra competition and it's been great because it's been somewhere else we've been able to send grain which has alleviated big long lineups at silos and been able to have longer opening hours, which has been great to be able to get trucks turned around early in the day and, and back to get back in the paddock. The, the crop, I think, on the peninsula is predicted to be around that 4 million tonne, which is significantly higher than we've seen in the past. And so it's been a really big feat just to be able to get it into the storage and handling system. And what else does that extra added competition provide in in terms of benefits for the grain supply chain on the EP? My understanding um, is it's about that four million tonne. That um, so with the tea ports, which is a, the new competition uh, for us, like since they've come, we've been receiving anywhere from thirty or twenty to, to thirty dollars a tonne uh, extra for our grain. And across, if you put that across our peninsula on a four million tonne crop, that's a hundred million dollars back in growers' pockets, and that's just phenomenal. To think that that's back in farmers' pockets and not off to a, a shareholder overseas. How, how did you go with your input costs? Because I know that for a lot of farmers, the uh, higher input costs was a concern at some points. Yeah, that, that is a really big problem. We're end users and end takers. We, we don't really get much of a choice. It's, it's really stretched things, I think, for most farmers to be able to put this crop in, and that's why it's even more rewarding the amount that we risk to put the crop in to be able to get it off and get a good result. Um, it's been all worthwhile. Inputs going forward are, are still very high. Yeah, we're just going to have to manage risk going forward, and that may be that might not be uh, some crops planted as much as we would in the past, and um, the higher risk crops, the higher input crops. But yeah, at the end of the day, every farmer and every every district's different. It depends on the on the season, break of the season, how much rain we get, and how much moisture we got in the bank, to how much risk we're willing to take. 
Air Peninsula's grain farmer Isaac Gill speaking there have had a, a text in saying the upper north region of South Australia has generally had around average yields. It's been okay, but not the bumper season that everyone else is talking about. Some quality okay, but problems with this white grain disorder that received uh, a lack of media interest. Uh, we did uh, cover it a bit here, but um, it uh, certainly took a lot of people by surprise. You won't see too many new tractors around here anytime soon. Thanks so much for your text. It is 24 minutes past. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. And just before we get to weather, there's been another outbreak or detection of fruit fly in the Riverland. Queensland fruit fly has been found in homegrown apricots around Glossop. It's the fifth outbreak since Christmas and the, there are now 21 outbreaks in the region and there are fruit fly restrictions in place until April 6. This new outbreak overlaps with a small part of the existing Monash Bay outbreak area and also takes new parts of the Berry Township into consideration. All properties with Within the new 1.5 kilometre red outbreak zone, will be receiving outbreak quarantine information from PERSA detailing what they need to do to stop the fruit fly spread. Hopefully they can get on top of it. But we'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now where I'm joined by Simon Timke, Senior Forecaster. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. So it's pretty warm out there today, but it's not going to last for too much longer by the looks of things. No, the change is moving across. We've seen it move across most of uh, of Air Peninsula, currently between about uh, Cleve and, and Wyala, to give an, an idea of the effect of that change. The temperature at Cleve is 25 at the moment and it's 41 at Wyala. So that uh, that change is bringing uh, some, some noticeably cooler conditions with it. Temperature at Port Lincoln, just 20 degrees at the moment. Uh, if you can imagine a line, well, roughly from Tarkula down to about Nuriutpa and then down to Robe, that's about where the change is now and it will continue to move steadily uh, uh, eastwards and northwards during the day today. By late evening, I expect it roughly near, um, or sorry, early evening, roughly near Cuba Peter to Renmark and then pushing northeastwards through um, Wednesday to, to clear the state eventually. Uh, we have seen obviously very hot conditions ahead of the change. A lot of places uh, uh, are getting into the low 40s or, or at least high 30s today ahead of the change. But uh, but as I mentioned a minute ago, you know, very um, significant decrease in temperature once the uh, once the change moves across. Also, some sort of fresher and and slightly gustier winds. Uh, in the southerly following the change and there has been some, some isolated thunderstorms around, moved across uh, Air Peninsula, York Peninsula, Kangaroo Island with the change. Nothing in the last sort of half an hour to an hour or so but we're starting to see some convective cloud develop and uh, wouldn't be surprised to see uh, some further um, thunderstorm activity develop uh, uh, through through the afternoon particularly near the change as it moves across those eastern districts could produce some uh, some gusty winds with those uh, those thunderstorms as well, particularly over those parts. Uh, the change, as I said, will move across the northeastern part of the, the state tomorrow, so the, the showers and isolated thunderstorms associated with that change will move northeastwards with it. So um, by Wednesday afternoon, I think they'll be mostly confined to the Pastoral and Flinders district, pretty much clearing by late evening too. And generally cooler conditions extending throughout as those southerly winds follow the uh, the change but hot to very hot in the far northeast before that change moves through on uh, on Wednesday and then for the later part of the week and the and the weekend we're dominated by a high pressure system south of the bike quite a slow moving feature so we stay in um 
generally south to southeasterly winds with cooler conditions, not much in the way of weather. Thursday through to, to Sunday, mostly dry, just the chance of a shower, a thunderstorm in the far northeast, far northwest, and also maybe some very light showers uh, in the uh, about windward coasts there. But, but generally speaking, dry conditions Thursday to, to Sunday. Monday and Tuesday next week, we do get a trough moving across from the east, which could bring some showers or thunderstorms, mostly to the agricultural area. Uh, rainfall totals wise, um, most of the rainfall over the next uh, week or so is today and tomorrow, generally 2 to 10 millimetres, possibly with showers or thunderstorms, and mostly that'll be later today, early Wednesday. Chance there could be a little bit more with thunderstorms, maybe getting into that 10 to 20 millimetre range, but that'll be very isolated, I think, Cassie. Thanks so much for that, uh, Simon Timkey. I'm sure people will appreciate the reprieve from this hot weather. Uh, we'll have more weather for you tomorrow. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be mostly sunny. There is a slight chance of a shower in the late afternoon and evening. Could be a thunderstorm around in the afternoon and evening as well. Could get a bit blowy as well in the middle of the day tomorrow and into the late afternoon. Overnight temperatures falling to 22 to 28 degrees, but still getting up to 40 degrees there tomorrow. The lower western will be partly cloudy. There's a medium chance of shower in the afternoon and evening. Also a thunderstorm chance there as well. Bit of wind around during the morning, overnight down to 21 to 26 degrees, but the daytime temperature is 28 to 39. It's coming up to 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company today for the Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff and, uh, I don't know, are you a fan of collecting cockles or perhaps pippies, as some people know them as well? It's been um, banned, uh, the... the um, the recreational cockle fishing has been banned on the northern side of the Murray Mouth due to the detection of E. coli. But commercial fishing is still going really strong. We've had massive recruitment. So last year we had a year where there were a lot of baby pippies coming through and they have grown faster than we thought they would grow. It's amazing to think that they're enjoying such a good season. I think there will be a bit of a, a boom in uh, the, the fish species in the Murray-Darling Basin as well, following all this water as well. So I'll tell you a little bit more about where you can get your pippies from or your cockles um, if you, it is something you like to do. You're not able to obviously fish for them yourself recreationally in that area that has been banned, but there are places you can still get them. So I'll have more on that soon. And the Federal Agriculture Minister is travelling to Europe this week. He'll be pushing the green credentials of Australian farming. So I'll have more on that soon. First, we have to find out what's making news with Evelyn Leckie. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Making news this hour. Liberal Senator and former Australian Army Major General Jim Molan has died at the age of 72. In 2021, the New South Wales Senator announced he was going on sick leave after being diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. He returned to Parliament and was re-elected to the Senate in May 2022 for a six-year term. South Australia's Minister for Emergency Services, Joe Sokarch, says the government is currently reviewing restrictions on non-essential water activity on the flooded River Murray. Boating was banned between the Victorian border all the way downstream to Wellington Lake last month. 
which the government said would help protect power infrastructure and levy banks. It comes after members of the Riverland community of Loxton protested the ban over the weekend. And a fire ban has been declared for the Mount Lofty Ranges today as the state's heat wave continues with increased wind fo- winds forecasted. Authorities have been on alert since the weekend over the scrub fire at Montacute that burnt 45 hectares of land, though that fire is now controlled. And more news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Evelyn. Uh, more news at one o'clock, as she said. But the Federal Agriculture Minister is travelling to Berlin this week promoting Australian produce. Murray Watt says he'll be pushing the green credentials of Australian farming as the government seeks to secure a free trade deal with the European Union. Here he is speaking with Kath Sullivan. Uh, when it comes to the trade agreement, we're obviously pushing for the best possible market access for Australian producers. And we've made very clear to the EU that we're not going to settle for any deal. There has to be meaningful gains to Australian producers in terms of the quotas and the quantity that we can export. Uh, but we'll also be pushing back on the geographical indicators point that's been raised by the EU Our position is that when we're talking about Prosecco or some of the other products that this is under discussion, um, these are not um, geographic issues. These are uh, issues of the types of grapes or the types of cheese and those sorts of things. And we don't think that Australian producers should be restricted in their use of that. So from your perspective, what is up for negotiation? What names might be tradable? Um, well, our position at the moment is that there, 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 sh- there is no uh, need for Australia to be dropping those names. Um, they are Which things names? like Prosecco, yep. uh, things like Prosecco, Parmesan, feta cheese. These are well-established names of products right across the ra- world. And just as other countries can continue to use those names, we think that Australian producers should be able to as well. Um, we're obviously prepared to give ground on a range of things for the EU. It's a two, it's a two-way street, and there are products that they're keen to get into Australia that. Um, uh, there are so certain barriers for at the moment, um, but we have a strong position when it comes to geographic indicators and, and we want to get behind Australian producers to preserve our position. Are you prepared to negotiate on animal welfare or chemical use when it comes to negotiating a free trade agreement with the EU? One of the things that we know the EU are keen to do is to ensure that there are some strong environmental uh, and sustainability measures as part of the agreement. And uh, depending on the specifics of those, we're up for that conversation. As I say, the other purpose of this visit to Berlin is to demonstrate to the world that Australian agricultural producers are far more sustainable than what is often recognised. I think, unfortunately, particularly because of the former Australian government's position on climate and sustainability issues, our producers sometimes attracted a reputation that wasn't deserved. The, certainly the Australian producers that I meet with and, and visit farms of are fully committed to sustainability and, and I'm confident that we can meet uh, what the EU is looking for. Um, I mean, I think what's important as well is for the EU to understand that there's no one-size-fits-all approach that works when it comes to sustainability. The EU are taking a certain approach, uh, very heavy on regulation and uh, herd reduction and things like that. We don't think those sort of measures are necessary in Australia or many other countries uh, to achieve sustainability, and we're keen to make sure that the world understands where we're coming from on these issues. Economists in your department at ABARES did some research last year which showed that if agricultural subsidies were reduced, uh, emissions could also be reduced from livestock. Would you be talking much about that research this week? Absolutely. Uh, That's also one of the messages I'll be taking to the EU in particular, is that 
you know, we know that there's a big debate around global food security at the moment around the world for good reason. Um, we've got climate conditions that are impacting on production in some countries. Of course, the war in Ukraine is having a massive impact on food security around the world as well. Um, but one of the things that Australia is pushing for is to make sure that we do keep trade as open as possible. Unfortunately, the tariff increases and other subsidies that we're seeing some countries introduce for their farmers actually are environmentally harmful. Um, they encourage poor environmental practices rather than good ones. So continuing that fight that Australia's made for decades now for tariff reduction and for free trade in agriculture, uh, not only do we think that that is a good way of meeting the world's food supply needs, but it's also really important to make sure that the sustainability of agricultural production gets even better. And just one last one, Murray Watt, as Agriculture Minister, are you getting briefings about the spud shortage in Australia and the lack of chips? Yeah, I have been uh, briefed about this by the department and, um, of course, as a, as a chip lover myself, that's a bit of a concern. There's a few, fair few potato chips consumed in our family, I can assure you. So uh, we haven't been able to see any impact at our local supermarkets, but for people who uh, are users of big quantities, the fast food chains and other, other groups like that, that's a big concern. So, of, of course, this is another example where the terrible weather conditions we've had in some parts of Australia over the last 12 months are having an impact. Uh, just as we had those $12 iceberg lettuces as a result of floods last year, uh, it seems that the floods in other parts of the country have really contributed to this shortage. So the sooner we can get over it, the better for all of us so we can enjoy our hot chips. Australia's Minister for Agriculture, Murray Watt, speaking with Kath Sullivan. The Minister is also travelling to London this week. He's calling on his British counterparts to ratify the UK-Australia free trade deal earlier this early this year after Australia ratified its part of the agreement in late 2022. Now, uh, he might have heard about uh, the grain harvest across South Australia that uh, in many parts of the state they've seen a potentially record harvest this year. And while the grains industry may seem quite male-dominated, a grain classifier in the Murraylands says all of her colleagues this harvest are women. Hannah Starrick is a grain classifier at Viterra's Upper Murray Silos, where both her sisters worked before her, and she tells Eliza Berlage why she's back for a second season. So both my sisters have actually worked at Viterra as well, and they both loved it. Just the relationships you make with, you know, the local farmers and all the truckies coming in, everyone's just so lovely. They're so patient. They understand if their grain isn't up to spec, they most of them are really understanding. And so, yeah, it's just a really great environment. The site that I work at is 10 minutes down the road from our family farm. So I thought it was a great opportunity. And, yeah, I've been doing it for two years now and I absolutely love it. Are there many other women out with you at the silos? Yeah, there is. So this year we had, there was six of us in the classifying hut. So there was three each shift. And yeah, we're all women out there. So most of the workers out in the bunkers or the grids, they're mostly male. But yeah, all of us in the classifying hut, we're all female and we all we all love it. And were many of the other uh, women working there, were they also from farming families or from uh, Broadacre? There were a couple, which was actually really helpful because I think coming in, we understand how the farmers are feeling and you know, a lot of us understood that this year wasn't a great year in terms of the late finish. And so a lot of guys that had put in seed early in the season, they actually then suffered because of the late rain that we ended up having. So we saw a lot of field fungi, a lot of 
sustaining a lot of sprouting. So that did hurt a lot of farmers around our region. But a lot of us understood working up in the Classy Hut. We understood that because, yeah, we do come from other farming families, but there were a lot of girls who come from Mo Bridge or just come from around the region but aren't necessarily attached to farming in any way, but they still absolutely loved it. So, yeah, it's a great job for anyone who's just looking for a month, a month or two of work, and it's really great pay as well. It's just a really great job. And what do you reckon were some of the challenges for for people who maybe grew up more in town and weren't as exposed to to grain growing up? Uh, I think probably just understanding that if the grain isn't up to spec, like we have to... We have to keep our farmers happy in the region, but we also have to understand that people and bigger corporations are going to be taking this grain out and they're going to actually be using it. And so I think growing up on a farm, I understand that, you know, you have to keep your farmers happy. You have to be able to let the grain in, even if it isn't completely great. But at the same time, you have to make sure that the grain that you're accepting is good quality grain because people are going to be buying that and if they're not happy, well, you know, you, so I think it was a fine line between understanding to keep everyone happy and I think the other thing was just understanding almost how harvest works in a way. So, like, um, if there was, if guys were coming in and they were having issues with screenings or, like, small seeds or stuff, stuff that can be blown out the back of the header if you just turn up the sieves or whatever. I think understanding that was really helpful because you can just say, all right, like just make sure you're running your header at the right speed, running everything at the right speed to make sure that you're actually getting these unwanted seeds out the back and only bringing us the good grain that we want. And just how flat out were you working this year um, compared to this is not not your first rodeo, you've done a couple of years before. How did this year compare uh, being one of the biggest uh, intakes on, on record? Yeah, so I think it was. it's definitely been dragged out. So we started really intaking probably the last week of November and we're still bringing grain in. Whereas last year, I think we had about three solid weeks of work and then it kind of dragged on for a week or two after that. But we were done before, a week before Christmas last year, whereas we're still going well into January this year. So it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely dragging out. And I think it's really affecting the farmers as well because last year it was done and dusted within three weeks. This year, just because it's dragging out so much, the stress and pressure that has been on the farmers to just get everything in as soon as possible. It's just, yeah, I think it's really taking a toll on everyone. But, yeah, it's definitely been been a whopper harvest. Grain classifier at Viterra's Upper Mara Silos, Hannah Starrick, speaking with Eliza Burlash. A Viterra spokesperson says this year the split is close to 50-50 when it comes to men and women in their harvest roles, which is similar to last year. So good to see that there's uh, some, uh, uh, I guess, equal opportunity there. And uh, the Viterra spokesperson also says that the company welcomed back about a third of their workers from the previous harvest season. It wasn't an easy year to get workers, so I'm sure that was a relief to have at least a third of your workers 
workers who had already been through the system. And speaking of grain, uh, with this large crop, it means that there's a lot of grain that you need to find places to store it. And you might be familiar with the big cement silos that you see near rail lines in towns or perhaps even the massive ones at the Port of Adelaide. But farmers also store their crop on farm as well in smaller silos or in temporary silo bags. These big, often white bags uh, lie down in the paddocks. They're a, a temporary single-use sort of storage option that, that farmers use to deal with the grain that they can't get to the silos or to the uh, receivers. And uh, after such a big year, there's actually quite a lot of them on farms across South Australia, and the industry wants to work out if there's a way they can be reused or perhaps recycled. Grain Producers SA has received a $60,000 grant to look at how big an issue silo bag waste is in this state and what can be done about it. CEO Brad Perry explains what the purpose of the silo bag or the grain silo bag circular economy feasibility study is. We've had a lot of feedback when we're out in the field from grain producers talking about silo bags um, and the challenge with reusing, recycling. I mean, just getting rid of the bags themselves. Um, They're obviously uh, very large silo bags. And uh, often they'll be sitting on, on properties after they've been used. So the question was, you know, what do we do with them? There's been some very interesting reuse options that, uh, that some producers use. So what we wanted to do was really uh, formally take a look at what we can do with grain silo bags from a sort of reuse recycling point of view. So we were able to successfully get a grant through Green Industries SA through the state government Um, for $60,000 to undertake a feasibility study into uh, repurposing and reducing the waste of grain silo bags. Silo bags are often pretty much single use and they do often get trashed by birds and things like that. What do you think people would be able to come up with? It's really, it would be really interesting to see um, what the the answer is to that. And I think that's, uh, that's been the question for some time. What, what can we do with the silo bags to reuse them and, and recycle them and, and turn them into, uh, from a single-use plastic as such, into to more of a circular economy product? So uh, we've, we've appointed a consultant who's looking into just about basically everything with, with silo bags. So opportunities now to, to reuse and repurpose. Um, and recycle uh, and other opportunities in the future that we might be able to um, use them for. Uh, at the moment, as I understand it, a lot of them sort of get rolled up and, and sit on properties so they can become a bit of a, a hazard really uh, on farm. I'm sure people would, would like to get rid of them or at least use them for something. Have any ideas come through yet? No, so not yet. We're um, So the consultant's currently um, undertaking work and and through that, we're actually, I mean, the first step is to try and understand how big a problem this is. So how many silo bags are actually sitting out there on, on farm? So um, he's doing a lot of work into to just understanding the problem um, as a start. Um, and then he's going to start to look at, uh, at different ways that we can really uh, recycle, repurpose and, and reuse some of these um, temporary plastic grain silo bags and so after we understand the, the state of play the scale of silo bag waste on grain farms we're actually going to look at um, what recycling avenues currently exist. I think it's important that um, they're affordable as well because growers uh, you know are more likely to, to leave them on farm if it's not an affordable viable option um, and then we're going to look at investment strategies as well that potentially can be developed to provide industry participation and circular solutions for the silo bags. So it really is quite a a big piece of work and we're really excited about the 
potential outcomes. And if people want to be involved, how do they get in touch? Uh, happy for them to contact um, Graham Producers SA. Um, yeah, we, we'd love to have more involvement. So if there's any um, any farmers out there that uh, that want to get involved in, in the study, certainly contact GPSA and, and we can put you on to the consultant. Um, the work's happening right now. So yeah, we're really excited to see uh, where this heads. And out of it too, once we've got the study, we, we want to raise a bit of a awareness campaign so if there are opportunities to to reuse repurpose recycle through that um we want to be able to educate um growers and, and stakeholders on of what they can do and even if there's some innovative uses we'd really like to sort of try and um advocate and pursue those as well i'm sure there will be some innovative solutions out there that was grand producers sacio brad perry speaking there about silo bags and what to do with these temporary often single-use silo bags that uh, have probably been used in quite large numbers across south australia this year it is 12 minutes to one get ready to be entertained in 2023 there's all new bureaucratic mayhem with season five of utopia this is exciting Mm. an unlikely hero emerges in the messenger i don't know i'm supposed to help you or something i need help Plus, all-new mother and son, Auntie Donna's Coffee Cafe, and so much more. How about that? Looking forward to 2023 on ABC TV and ABC iView. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Keen recreational cockle fisher or pippy fisher and you're missing being able to go out and collect them in the northern side of the Murray Mouth due to the detection of E. coli there. Well, uh, I'd love to, to know uh, perhaps what you're doing as an alternative or maybe where you are getting your uh, pippies because commercial fishing is still going strong and some pippy harvesting crews on the Coorong have been filling their daily quota in less than an hour. It's a... Uh, Absolutely amazing fishing there at the moment by the sounds of things. Director of Goolwa Pippi Co, Tom Robinson, says the floodwaters coming in from the River Murray have not been impacting their commercial operations there. The harvest area that we harvest pippies commercially on is the Young Husband Peninsula, which runs in a southeasterly direction from the Murray Mouth, and our approved harvest area is 60 kilometres in length. And as a consequence, we are in a fortunate position where we can go to other areas of the beach if SASQAP, the South Australian Shellfish Quality Assurance Program, tells us there are areas of the beach that we shouldn't be fishing because of E. coli in particular. So that work is normally conducted on a fortnightly basis, but with the flows coming out of the Murray Mouth at the moment, we are doing it on a weekly basis. And in the last test that we did on Monday, the entire test that we did um, for the first 10 kilometres of the beach came back with a zero reading for E. coli, which makes us feel confident about the product that we are harvesting from the beach. We also have taken a precautionary approach of closing the first 10 kilometres of our harvest area because the area that is obviously most likely to be impacted by the water coming out of the Murray Mouth because obviously the higher the normal river flows. But even in that 10 kilometre zone that we tested, there was zero sign of E. coli. But our crews are typically fishing up around the 30, 40 kilometre mark at the moment, which is obviously a significant distance from the Murray Mouth. The flows going through is not something you've often had to deal with, I imagine. There obviously have been floods in the past. I joined the fishery in 2002 
but I work with people who have been fishing that resource for three generations and there was obviously the large flood in the 50s and another one in the 70s, but nothing in recent times. Um, I suppose from a biological point of view and the biomass that we fish, we were wondering about what impact the fresh water would potentially have on the resource and we're pleased to report that uh, our harvest crews are harvesting pippies at the best abundance and quality we have for over a decade. Um, I was speaking to one of the crews this morning um, that literally started fishing at quarter past eight. They completed their fishing by nine o'clock and had harvested a tonne of pippies in that time, which is just like world record pace for us. When you're saying the best time, how recent is that? Is that the last few weeks, the last couple months? We've had massive recruitment. So last year we had a year where there were a lot of baby pippies coming through and they have grown faster than we thought they would grow. And so harvesting conditions are extremely good at the moment. But the interesting thing is we would normally harvest on a high water, which is when the pippies are normally at their best. But because of a combination of the fresh water and also just the abundance of pippies, our crews are actually fishing on the low water tide because the pippins have gone a bit deeper than normal. And so whilst they are in high abundance, our cruisers are fishing them slightly differently to the, when they, to the way they have in previous years. When did they start to make that swap? When was the difference noticed? Well, n- normally what happens is the highest water of the day during the summer period is, is during the night. And a lot of our crews will sometimes fish during the night because the pippies are better at that time than they are on the lower water or the lower high tide during the day. But they are in such abundance at the moment that our crews are able to get onto the beach and fish essentially on low water, which is extremely rare for commercial harvesting of pippies. So it all sounds pretty positive at the moment. No E. coli, really strong conditions for harvesting. How has demand for pippies been? Has there been any impact from people being concerned about them or is it just as strong as ever? Well, we have a informal commercial relationship with a cafe down at Gorwa Beach called the Kuri Shack that serves a lot of our pippies and we've just been looking at that with interest because wondering whether the impact on the closure of the recreational beach might impact people's desire to eat pippies and pleased to say that we've probably sold more pippies in the last week than we've sold for a long time. So we provided the Kuri Shack with a letter from Sasquatch just confirming that the resource that we're fishing or the beach we're fishing is safe. There's a, I suppose, something that people can read if they were had any questions, but no demand for our pippins here and obviously in the, in the lead up to the Lunar New Year is quite strong at the moment. Gilwa Pippi co-director Tom Robinson speaking with Elsie Adama. It's good to hear that uh, there's uh, some good numbers out there of uh, pippies for people who are keen to get their hands on some this summer. While we're talking about uh, seafood, marine biologists from around the world have been in Hobart at an international reef symposium swapping ideas and research. Many are looking at the effects of warming waters on the coastal areas around the globe. Dr Dan Smale from the Marine Biological Association of Plymouth in the UK says getting together after COVID has been fantastic. This conference has been quite important in my career development and the career development of some of the younger scientists coming through. Uh, I think I've been to the last five of these meetings uh, and some of the people I've met here have been turned into like long-term collaborators uh, around the world, which um, helps a lot with some of our scientific objectives as well. So Hong Kong was the last one. Do you recall a couple of the others before then? Yeah, before Hong Kong, it was in Pisa in Italy and before that, Perth, Western Australia and before that, 
Plymouth, uh, UK. Not sure about Plymouth, UK. Like the others sound very exotic and I saw some of the photos and looked like you had fun. Yeah, yeah, it's always a good meeting. Now getting to Plymouth, UK, that's actually where you're based at the moment? That's right, but it's a very vibrant community. I guess a bit like Tasmania in terms of the number of marine scientists. In your talk, you had a map that had sort of warming coastlines right around the world, which I thought was really interesting because it has sort of happened right around the world, hasn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Most of the global ocean is, or the coastline is warming. There are a few pockets that uh, haven't warmed so much, such as uh, around South America and Antarctica. But yeah, on, on the whole, uh, we're seeing lots of warming around the world. One thing you did say in your talk was you, you mentioned baseline studies. And in fact, you've used some data from a woman who conducted some sort of survey back in the 1940s. That seemed quite remarkable that that was happening. Can you tell me about her and what happened then? Yeah, it's it's a really lovely uh, piece of historical ecology, really. Um, In the UK, we don't have very good long-term monitoring programs. I think there's some really good ones in California and parts of Australia, but we, we haven't really set those up. So what we can do is look back at some historical studies and then go and resurvey those places. And uh, this lady called Mary Park was working at the NBA. Uh, and in the early 1940s, um, she did some incredible surveys of local kelp beds to try and understand how much uh, seaweed biomass was there because it was important um, the seaweed was used in some of the textiles industry that supported the war effort at the time. And she kept incredibly detailed notes, uh, maps and observations, and they've all been archived at the NBA, so we were able to extract them, digitise them, and then go and resurvey exactly the same spot almost 80 years later. So, so the NBA is the... The Marine Biological Association, sorry, where I work, yeah. It sure so, would have been quite unusual, surely, as a woman, as a scientist doing these surveys back then, during the war? Absolutely, yeah. yeah I think Mary Park was an incredible scientist and well ahead of her time. Uh, it wasn't just those surveys she did. She worked a lot on smaller microalgae as well as the larger kelps. Um, so to have that uh, information to build upon is just a really great opportunity. So how has she helped you in some of your and your team's uh, observations and studies? Yeah, so I think the NBA has got a long line of uh, amazing scientists, um, both female and male, and Mary Park's work has has really laid the baseline for some of the stuff that we're doing. She identified um, a a climate change winner uh, in Plymouth Sound way before anyone else, and we've been able to build on that work to see how that kelp species is increasing in abundance around the coastline. Because you've been talking about uh, how important baseline studies are and some you know, research today are having trouble because they don't have those earlier baseline studies. But you've been able to see some sort of change or at least compare now to then, the 1940s? Yeah, absolutely. We were able to go back to exactly the same place that Mary Park surveyed, do exactly the same methods, exactly the same survey technique. And now we have evidence that some kelp species have declined, uh, probably uh, in response to increasing sea temperatures around the coastline. So, yeah, it's quite a unique opportunity to have that baseline to go and go and resurvey. Dr Dan Smale from the Marine Biological Association in Plymouth, UK, speaking with Fiona Brain. Now, I've just had a text in from Mick from Manham saying that he was given several used silo bags from some broadacre farmers to use along with sandbags to create a levee around his irrigation pump. They did cheekily say that if you want two bags, you'll get a semi-load. They said there's a lot out there. I did just need two, uh, Mick says, and took two, but it'd be great if there was a better recycling option. Thanks for that text. More to come this afternoon with Sonia Feldoff on your ABC local radio. Hi, Sonia. Hello, Cassie. We're going to find out why incoming pets to Australia uh, may be forced to do three times longer than the normal quarantine uh, here in Australia. And also, um, lightning. Uh, We know it can cause huge damage. It can put your power out. But new 
lightning lasers are apparently being quite successful overseas. Will they better protect your power supplies here in the future? I want to hear more about lightning lasers. Keep listening to ABC Local Radio. It's coming up to one o'clock. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.